Well, before we go any farther, I think someone reaching the ninth decade of their life is a testament to something pretty amazing. And I would like to see us sing Happy Birthday to Hank Storr. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Hank. Happy birthday to you. And many, many, many more. I don't know that we've done that before in a service, have we? You're a first, Hank. One of the paradoxes that play through my mind from time to time is that of learning, on the one hand, to be present and at peace in the moment and in my own skin, and then on the other hand, to be striving to remain engaged and involved on a deep level with the things in the world that are meaningful, productive, energetic, working both to relieve the struggles, troubles, and pains of life, and to be in relationship with family, friends, and community, being in the moment, letting go of everything as it goes by, being deeply involved and caring about everything that's happening. I do personally believe there's very great value in living in the moment, staying in the moment, and trusting that. The 1971 publication by a man called Ram Das, who had been a Harvard professor, was a bestseller, and I have a copy of it that's falling apart. Not because it's been read that much. <laughs> it's just that old. <laughs> And I think it may have been published on recycled paper 30 years ago. I did read the book. It had a lot of effect on a lot of people. It was trying to help us somehow reconcile um, the relationship between temporal consciousness and spiritual life. Many of you know I grew up in a Baptist church in a religious family. We spent much of our time 
when we weren't at school, either involved in church activities at the church or with families from the church. There was something to do almost every night. But one thing I have to give the Baptists is that they really enthusiastically promote that people learn the literature, study the texts, think about the texts, and memorize as much of it as you possibly can. How many of us can even say our seven principles? From beginning to end, can you? No. Seven. <laughs> I can recite more Bible verses than that. But of course, I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, anyway, I dealt a lot with exposure to the Hebrew, Hebrew and Christian texts. And most of the passages that, are, that had the most meaning for me are collected in three chapters in the book of Matthew in the Christian Testament that's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The author of that book tells us that Jesus instructed his students not to worry. He, met, uh, the, he points to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field that don't have to do anything but be exactly what they are. And they have all they need. Without worry. And then the question is posed, shouldn't we be able also to be okay if we do what is truly our nature to do? Of course, course that begs the question, is that what comes easy, what we're enculturated to do, or what is natural and those may not be the same thing but ought we not be capable of living a, a life that flows and feels comfortable The Sermon on the Mount goes on to say, you know, can any of us, by worrying, add a year to our life? Might take a few off that way. But I really think that what Ram Das in, in the book Be Here Now was trying to do is, is deal with the same paradox that I mentioned, you know, the difference or the tension between the temporal life, what we do in the world, who we are in the world, and that which is deeper and and transcends 
concrete, palpable life. We Unitarians tend to take quite seriously the things we're doing that we have chosen as our contribution to this world. We're adept adept at enjoying ourselves as long as we don't get on some of those subjects that are most deep in what we care about. And like the safety of children, health or health care, personal, financial, or national security, war and peace, justice. The health of the planet. When these sorts of topics come up, we can get thrown out of balance pretty quickly. Not all of us and not all the time, certainly, but there I can I can see the calmest of us have heightened response to topics that we care about most deeply. And they, they knock us out of balance. I don't think you have to be unfeeling or, or any less deeply involved to find that balance. Of course, I'm still working on it. But I notice shifts. I know it gets better. We lose spiritual peace in those moments and slip right back into fretting over the temporal. Back towards the end of spring or the beginning of summer, I noticed a couple of things uh, that I made note of. One was a lizard that was perched on a long, young banana leaf. The wind was particularly tempestuous. It didn't bother the lizard at all. When the gusts of wind came through, I didn't see the little lizard muscle tense, you know, or it start looking around for something else to cling to. It just sat there being what it is until the bad stuff passed. And then when it was just mildly disturbing, he would go on his way. I thought to myself, he isn't trying to stop the wind or control the wind or his environment. He sat there being where he is, or was in that moment, doing exactly what was his to do. And I didn't 
I don't know what gender the lizard was, so excuse my pulling one out of thin air. But he was fine. In that part of the year, we had a few anthills growing up around the yard. They seemed to go away as the summer went on, but uh, the parade of ants stretched from one end of the yard to the other, with traffic going both directions. And they would check in with this ant or that, not all of them, and not every time. It's like they were, hey, how you doing? You know, oh, oh, did you see Johnny? <laughs> But they just went on their way, doing their work. Um, I couldn't really discern a pattern to it. But again, simply doing what it was theirs to do. I don't think they have to try as hard as we do to figure out what that is. Um, As the hills grew, there seemed to be fewer ants walking around outside, so I figured after they got the outside built, they were decorating. (laughs) Or maybe working on the plumbing, I don't know, but um, choosing paint colors. Not long after that, a very heavy rainstorm came. And from one of the valleys on my roof, a waterfall was landing right on top of one of those anthills. And just pretty much washed it flat. I don't know where the ants went in the meantime, but when the sun came back out, they were parading to someplace new. Starting the relocation and new construction, behaving exactly as they did before the rain, as best I could tell, of course. I wasn't watching their every move, and I can't see ant muscles, so I don't know how tense they may have been. (laughs) But these creatures caused me to recognize, maybe on just a little bit deeper level than I had before, that the expectation of stability or consistency doesn't exist in nature. There is no expectation of stability or consistency in nature that I can discern. And of course, yes, there are many ways that you can argue this point. I'm not making, uh, I'm not stating this to a scientific certainty. But change is perpetual. We all know that. Adapting is the norm. Starting over again from scratch is commonplace. We humans struggle so hard in this world because we have artificially created that expectation in the structures we've built and in the systems that we've constructed and in which we participate.
I've seen people in my life that somehow have found the way to maintain that balance between being personally present, fully present, and you can feel it when you talk to them, and genuinely engaged in the things that desperately need their assistance. With skill, love, and mindful attention, their work reaps uncommonly high yield. They accomplish more with less, or that's how it seems. With slow, steady, faithful steps, they whittle away on the things that stand between this world as it is and the one we share a vision of creating. We, too, can do this. There's an old Zen saying, chop wood and carry water. The teller of the Zen tale explains that before one reaches enlightenment, one chops wood and carries water. After one reaches enlightenment, one chops wood and carries water. The job hasn't changed. The need it's meeting is no different. So what, what is different? It has to be the internal condition or weather. The frame of mind has been altered somehow. The paths are many, but our ultimate goals are principles we share. Who would have thought after all these years we would still be learning to wake up? It isn't better or more that we have to be. It isn't better or more that we need. It is simply learning the lessons of how to be comfortable with what is. Because that's how things grow. Until we reach that place from which our actions become more effective, we will no doubt need to maintain our bit of discomfort with how things are. Because that's our motivation for now. And I'm not asking anybody to give it up. As a matter of fact, if something feels like a burr under your saddle, take the saddle off. Find the burr. Address the problems. 
I know you do that. All of you do that in your work. All of you do that with your lives. But I'm suggesting that it might get easier. There's another way to it. And that it involves internal work. Leo Tolstoy, whose works reportedly had a major impact on Gandhi and on Martin Luther King Jr., wrote, An immortal soul needs a task as immortal as itself. I know not all of us believe that anything about us extends beyond this life. I don't think that we're ever destroyed, but um, Tolstoy wrote, such a task is the continuous improvement of itself and of the world. And this is the task that it is given. The work will always be there for us to do. We can fight it as most typically seems to be human nature, which I think is a bit of an oxymoron. Um, Not exactly. Or we can lessen the strain by finding comfort with what is.